Hi, you're listening to Hoopleheads, a Deadwood podcast at Movieville. My name is Soren Howe, and I'm here with Esther Rosenfield. And today we are joined by a very special guest, uh, Ben Seiler, who is a longtime listener of the show, also a huge Deadwood fan, and also the host of uh, his own uh, Deadwood podcast called uh, Anyways. Um, so yeah, welcome to the show, Ben. Thank, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. We're really excited oh, to have it's you. It's awesome. Um, <laughs> you want to just quickly like go over like your history with the show, maybe when you started watching, that kind of stuff? Uh, yeah, well, um, I can share your pain with Game of Thrones. Uh, about <laughs> two or three years ago, I, two to three or maybe four years ago, I switched my energies for novelistic television from Game of Thrones to Deadwood, and I found a lot of delight in reading about Deadwood and uh, discussing Deadwood and going on the Deadwood subreddit and telling people what I understood uh, to be some of the actual history as compared to the Deadwood show version. And uh, yeah, I like that complexity. And, uh, you know, as Game of Thrones, you have another podcast where you talk about Game of Thrones. And as that got less complex, the show was very fulfilling in terms of how rich it was. Um, yeah. Oh, so it's funny that you... you... <laughs> You used Deadwood the same way we did. And also, you came to Deadwood after, like, well after it aired then. Had you seen it? Did you see yeah, when it came yes, out? Or yes. was, it, was it much later? Uh, no, I did not see it when it came out. I it was I walked through rooms where it was playing, and it, it didn't strike me at the time. And I think I may have tried to start it a while back. Uh, and the first episode, as it does with a lot of people, didn't quite you know grabbed me first off and i had to go back and do it a second time but mm-hmm. then i fell in love with it and i've watched it maybe about three or four times and the first two seasons a lot uh, the third season i've seen less but uh and yeah cool. wow and, and is there a reason that you've watched the first two seasons more than the, the last season is it uh, do you just find them well i've I've always heard about the last, the last season. It has a different visual look and, uh, there are things that I'm afraid I, I I don't want to, I don't want to, I'm very excited about your next two episodes of this podcast and I don't want to influence you in any way about it. So, uh, but just, I heard certain different things about season three and it kind of colored how I received season three. Uh, Okay. Well, that's, I I don't really want (laughs) to expound upon that. I mean, I, I definitely heard as well, kind of before going into season three, I remember someone I follow on Twitter had kind of put up a poll that was like, what's your favorite Deadwood season? And season three was real, pretty decidedly in last. And that was kind of when we were in the middle of season two. Mm. So I definitely went into it thinking like, oh, well, you know, everyone loves the show, so I'm sure it's not bad. But clearly there is kind of a disparate. Clearly people like it more for these first two seasons, maybe than for the last season. Um, And I've been, you know. I've been really loving this season. I can definitely, I think season two, well, we can get into overall impressions when we're done next week, I guess, but season Mm. two definitely kind of hangs together a little more cohesively, kind of feels more like a complete unit, uh, maybe than season three does, which kind of season three has kind of weird tangents that don't really go anywhere. And it's a little looser and, uh, and not as, uh, cohesive, I guess. But, um, so I can, which is funny because I feel like this season has a more consistent through line. Right. There's there's less factionation of the town um, into into its like many quadrants and more even in this episode. Right. George Hurst says that the town is galvanized and there's definitely this um, uh, this um, segregation of the town between like 
almost everyone else in the town versus George Hurst. And it becomes actually a, a much simpler narrative in that sense. So, and that is definitely pervasive, right? This whole season's based on that. But you're right. It also, so it's, so it, while its core story gets more um, concentrated, I would say, you, it does also have, uh, as you mentioned, these like offshoots like the theater troupe, for, <laughs> for example. That's what I was um, thinking of primarily, yeah. Um, which, uh, but you know what it feels like, you know what, this is, this is a very particular, uh, reference point, but you know what it feels like, um, season three of Korra, of Legend of Korra, and the reason I say that is, if you remember, right, the, when they made the Legend of Korra, um, they knew they would have one season and that was going to be it. And then they knew they would have another season and that would be it. And then by season three, they knew that they would have a fourth season. So then they were like, ah, we can like start to, you know, put up, you know, it has its own story, but they started seeding these things that would be picked up in season four, um, like Kuvira and things like that. And this, and then if, but if it had ended at season three, you'd be like, why did they focus on that random character that we're never going to see again? Um, because the show has been canceled or whatever. Um, and here it feels like it, you know, it's, it's David Milch saying, ah, I've got, you know, this whole plan for, I don't remember if it's supposed to be five or six seasons. Um, but you know, and and I can start to sort of make these these broader story instead of just single season stories that I can sort of uh, set up. Um, but then it was canceled, so there wasn't much more after that. That is interesting. I, I do kind of get that impression too. I guess it does kind of feel like. I mean, I definitely get. We don't know how it ends, obviously. Um, but this definitely does not feel like everything is going to be resolved next week, and we <laughs> we know it doesn't, in fact, because they had a whole movie this year. <laughs> So I can definitely see how, like, they, I do get the impression going into the end of this season, especially after how things go down this, this episode, that there is a, an expectation of continuity, um, mm -hmm. that we know would not come for a very long time and not in the form of another season at all. Right. Right. And, and, and the way in which it, it, it's, um, anticipates more is different than like if it had ended in season two where George Hurst shows up, you go, I kind of see where they were going to go with that. Introducing George Hurst at the end of the, the season was obviously going to go in this particular direction. What they're doing here with like the theater troupe and stuff, it's not so obvious where that was going to eventually lead. Um, and I have no idea if they pick up any of that in the film. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I'm sure Ben's just sitting there going, ah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, uh, I want to. I would love to talk to you guys about the whole thing, but it's like, uh, yeah, I can't. I, I shouldn't say. A, I shouldn't say a word. So, <laughs> well, we appreciate that. Um, no, it'll be good. Dude. You'll you'll get to hear our surprise, or or uh, uh, maybe we'll hate the movie. I don't know. Who knows? Um, I don't anticipate it. Speaking of movies, though, so first of all, um, I just want to say quickly about the uh, the. So this is an episode, the Catbird Seat. It's directed by Greg Feinberg. Uh, really phenomenal direction and also just a phenomenal episode. I yeah, I, I gotta say, like, we were kind of unimpressed with his other episode this season. Remember? Like, it was episode three, right? I remember coming out of that yeah. thinking like, oh, you know, it's kind of typical TV direction. It's not really kind of like the special stuff that we get from like a Dan Minahan or an Ed Bianchi that mm. are really kind of striking. It's it's more familiar um, I remember what I said. What I said was that you have liked him in the past, but this season you weren't you weren't bowled over. 
that's probably yeah yes yeah because he has he has delivered surprisingly good stuff in the past uh well i don't know if surprisingly good i don't i don't you know i don't know the guy but <laughs> it was it was in the past it's been you know he's he's been pretty strong um but yeah this episode has all these really interesting cuts and like uh like close there's those close-ups on yeah can we talk about that close-up on farnham like yeah or the or placing the camera on uh, ellsworth's body i mean which it cuts back to you know um so yeah and and these really striking scenes of uh like when ellsworth is standing and he's uh, sorry not ellsworth um farnham is standing and completely like uh, it's completely black around him um Interesting choice for that character, which is a, a, a like sort of a motif we've actually observed in a few by a few different directors on a few few different episodes, um, and a funny choice to use that character uh, to use such striking imagery because it's Farnham. But um, yeah, no, I thought it was it was uh, it, the whole episode had a very cinematic vibe. I felt like it, it almost felt like <laughs> what I anticipate the movie to be more like uh, and less like the show, um, based purely on the trailer. Um, but anyway, yeah, so we can get that get into that in a second, but I just want to point out, so this is Greg Feinberg, and it's written by Bernadette McNamara, who has been, like, uh, in the background of uh, the show in, like, sort of a support role. She's, like, had various roles on the the um, on the series so far, but has not written any episodes. It's the only episode she wrote. Um, really well written, uh, really well directed, and then uh, also I just want to uh, mention on the title, so the Catbird Seat, is apparently a term referencing uh it's like when you're in like a, a like you have the advantageous um position right you're the you're mm-hmm. in like a position where you have like a, a the advantage in a situation so like it like strategically um and it apparently was popularized by a, a sports announcer called red barber and Red Barber, who was a, I guess, a radio announcer for maybe baseball or something like that, um, wasn't born until 1908 and died in uh, 1992. Um, so it's kind of anachronistic as a title, but it works really well, obviously, contextually, because the whole episode is these two factions trying to gain control over uh, the situation. And there's this, it's not just about how many people they have, um, but also strategic planning on you know where we're going to place people and how we're going to present ourselves to the rest of the town it's funny you know going in um i thought that this title meant the same thing as kitty corner which is like <laughs> like when someone's sitting <laughs> diagonally from you i thought oh it's like the cat bird seat it's like a kitty corner like diagonal <laughs> That's, um, but it actually works because they do they are kind of diagonal from each other across the i guess sure <laughs> Um, that's good that's very good that's but and they didn't say it in the episode so it wasn't until i had to google later that i was like oh that okay mm. well there, there's also a game of duck duck goose during this episode there Chil- is children's game. that is true that is mm-hmm. true um, um i i have a go ahead i just want to say james thurber the who wrote the the story the catbird th- seat which popularized it um i i had a, a struggle trying to connect that title to this episode uh but i watching it for the second time today i there's two instances in the episode where there's a character who has the the drop on another character who's in the background uh, uh particularly with ellsworth and also with the soldier that bullock talks to during the speeches mm-hmm. and that's as far as i could go it's a stretch but i, I just thought maybe that is what i mean obviously hearst has the upper hand currently um 
but anyway. Well, uh, yeah, but there's also, I mean, I guess there's this, you know, there's um, there's Al sending out for more reinforcements, uh, both with um, with uh, Hawkeye and also with Wu, um, and this this sort of you, you get you're getting this almost battle planning from these two characters as they're they're sort of managing their sides of the the table. I, I will say this. Um, just on that, uh, very briefly on that point, there's a scene when uh, when Hurst is is towards the end of the episode, sort of monologuing, um, and then you realize that he is talking to somebody. He's talking to one of these Pinkerton people in the room, and he just sort of stops talking because he realizes that this guy is not really somebody to either confide in or talk to or has any interest in what's going on. Um, and it's just this kind of moment of loneliness for him. Because Al is surrounded yeah. by everybody who we care about in the show, and he can talk to anyone, and they are, uh, you know, there's this great moment with Charlie and some of uh, Al's uh, henchmen, um, where they kind of have a, a nice moment together, and and just various characters who didn't necessarily have a real connection coming together on that side of things, and Hurst doesn't even have Captain Turner anymore, right? He's just completely isolated, and everybody around him are allies with him because of his power and because of his money, but not because... They have any sort of connection to him, and it's not that he really registers that, but he does. You know, he registers it more strategically or more tactically. But um, the, you know that, that that the other side has you know all of this support. Um, but you do sort of get that impression that he at least understands that he is functionally alone or like socially alone, and I kind of like that as a. a it's not going to like win any battles, but it's a it's a kind of a nice uh, uh, contrast between the the two sides. And as you pointed out in a previous episode, the Pinkertons are all interchangeable and anonymous. Yes. They usually have gray hair and they're all dressed the same. Exactly. And, and yeah. the one we did know died. So, so yeah. now there's a, there's, there's no, um, there's nobody left really to reference. Um, okay. So yeah, why don't, why don't we just, uh, why don't we get into it? So I, I imagine Esther, you were, this was a fairly shocking episode for you. Yeah, you could say that. Um, <laughs> I've been waiting for this it. for so long because of that that Twitter comment that was like, "Oh, poor Ellsworth," and you're like, "What happens to Ellsworth?" That's and then right. at some point, oh, I forgot about that. In a previous, I haven't brought it up because in a previous episode, you were like, "Oh, that must be what happened to Ellsworth," and I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> "I had completely forgotten about that." But no, I mean, the, I, I mean, I, there's a couple things that happened before this, but they do not matter. Um, in comparison, like, can we just jump right into? The way this scene is constructed is so good. The way that, like, I had to rewind it because I was I was watching pretty attentively, but I was still like, "Wait, what? What happened? <laughs> what just happened?" And I, I had to rewind. I had to like. What's funny is they announce it. They announce it before it ever happens, right? Uh, um, I mean, they don't say specifically who, but it's pretty well you know um foreshadowed right like uh hearst says you have the names of the people i want you to kill this guy's in a tent then we see ellsworth in a tent and you're like oh no oh no this is gonna be bad but you you're still led not to because of this long monologue where it's completely unrelated to that that you're just you're still caught off guard despite the like full warning (laughs) just moments before the way it plays out is so because it does it it takes you on this very like we're so used to these monologues kind of playing out rather almost like it's almost like they take place in their own pocket universe where it, there's nothing really outside of them. <laughs> you know, it's pretty rare that a monologue is like uh interrupted 
in this mm. way. You know, they just kind of are usually happen and it's a scene and they cut away from it. And then the way that the actual like. There's no moment of tension where you see the guy approaching. They don't really like they don't play it for like. um, You know, excitement and anxiety. They don't or they're not like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? It's just they they cut. And all of a sudden there's a guy pointing a gun at his head and then he shoots him in the head. Like there's no, it just kind of happens and then it, it's over. There's, there's no, it's not a tense moment. It's a, it's like an actually shocking moment. Yeah. And they also don't really allow, um, I guess in the posts and in seeing people's reactions, we get a bit of more, a bit more of the emotional, like the sadness of the the whole thing right like if you because so one way you could play it is building tension where you know this is coming um but the other thing is you would sort of the tragedy the inevitable the sorry the the tragedy of the inevitability of it so like if you see him approaching then you would know this is where elsworth dies and you would have like a chance to sort of like come to grips with that but the suddenness of it just completely sidesteps that entire sort of emotional arc for you um uh, as a viewer and so you are left trying to catch up with the the craziness of what just happened um which is a particular choice and also you know as we've noted in the past many times um this is an episode that could have been very gory in many instances and just kind of doesn't go that way at all um it really just sort of allows what happened to happen without reveling in it but also it, again it doesn't really give us that emotional space to to think about it i don't know if you if you felt like ellsworth has just, you know he's he's been around for three seasons and um you know i don't know if we we he got his 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 full due here um i mean it's hard to say just because it's there's definitely an extent to which like this is a character who's kind of been sacrificed to the greater narrative you know what i mean um he has been you know on literally on the altar of the hearse narrative we have sacked we have stabbed ellsworth in the heart um in order to further this kind of grander story so there is an extent to which like yeah it's disappointing to see a character who we've known for so long kind of being sucked into this other thing for to be killed but i also think that like i mean you know well there's there's probably going to be stuff that happens next week that that we haven't seen yet that might be kind of a grander like mourning period um but then again like stuff's popping off so hard that it's part it's kind of hard to imagine that there will be any lot more time devoted to like mourning him except maybe by alma um but also i do think that like the reason it works is because ellsworth is at this kind of position where he's not like a really not that I hate Ellsworth, but he is not a beloved personality in the way that like Doc Cochran is or the way that like Trixie is where it's like, Oh, you love that character. Ellsworth is kind of like, Oh, he's a good guy. I like him, you know, but he's, he is a little more, I guess, expendable in that way. He's a little more, you feel like you'll feel terrible that he, I feel you know, it's awful what happened to him. And it's, it's, it's terrible. But it, I think because uh, of the way that this happened, it almost does make that, it does lend some weight to kind of the, 
the arc of this character, the idea that this is a guy who just wanted to do right by people who loathed Hearst Mm -hmm. because of how vicious and vile, because he does things like this. And the end of his life comes because, you know, it it comes as a result of this kind of uh, grander political uh, economic play that he never really asked to be a part of, that he was just kind of, again, like pulled into. Um, so I think that like, I can appreciate the kind of, I can appreciate the writing on that level. I, I, like, I really do. I, I, I'm obviously distraught by what happens in this episode, but I do like how it plays out. I think it's well, I think it's well done. How about you, Ben? Um, I just like to point out, uh, Ellsworth goes out, uh, the way he, in an offhand moment wanted to, he, uh, when he goes up to, uh, Alma's claim with Dan and Bullock and maybe the first season, he said he tells Dan, thinking Dan's going to kill him, that he would like one behind the ear if possible, uh, like a quick bullet in the head. And that's the way he'd like to go out. And so it's sort of like a nice thing for for Ellsworth that he dies in the way that he wanted to. Um, that's a good point. But, uh, I had forgotten about that. But I, I agree with everything you said. He's he's an upstanding individual and he needs to be sacrificed upon the altar of Hearst. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I love Ellsworth and... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think uh the the main thing with um with Ellsworth is that he he kind of has this original sin, right? Where he knows he knows this original crime that Al did. Um which is funny because a lot of <laughs> I mean in some ways this episode is dealing with some of the very foundational material of Deadwood. Right, we have this this sequence with Sophia, um, or trying to figure out how to handle Ellsworth's death in light of Sophia, and how she experienced her family being murdered, murdered, uh, of course, by Al's people, and um, we know that Alma's husband, who she didn't particularly like anyway, uh, was also murdered by uh, Al's folks. So um, it's and and yet and yet Al is sort of the uh, the sheltering figure in this <laughs> yeah, this yeah. Episode. um so it's kind of this like it's this full 360 180 i don't know i don't know how to refer to it but it's this it's funny it's kind of a it's kind of poetic in how it it brings these things back together again where ellsworth not that he deserved to die but he kind of pays for this this original this original um lie uh that he he's he's kept for so long um that it's not like a thing that's brought up in the show frequently but it is a it is a truth that he knows about um and and then there's also this this element with Sophia so yeah i mean i like i like how this it it doesn't it's the episode does not conclude the show uh and i don't know that next episode will conclude the show uh the way that we want it to maybe perhaps it will but again well- I, I also, movie. but but it, it does it does conclude a lot thematically a lot of ideas or at least uh, at least harken back to a lot of the ideas that started the show and I kind of like that as at least a little bit of symmetry. I think Ellsworth is kind of also his death here is a testament to Milch's haphazard writing style, uh, the way in which you'll add plots and drop them a little willy nilly. Um, mm. Like you said, the things you mentioned with Ellsworth uh, witnessing Alma's husband's first husband's murder. And also uh, being involved in the shenanigans around the claim, uh, those are a lot of like very juicy p- potential conflicts between her, I mean, between him and Alma. And the show never develops it; it kind of turns him into a martyr. Um, 
Yeah, exactly. And yeah, exactly. It's something that they could have developed as like a um, some sort of guilt piece or whatever. But and and this is something I pointed out to Esther, I think, uh, um, a few episodes back, which is, you know, they kind of reinvent Ellsworth, right? He's kind of he's kind of cowering and complicit and not evil, but just not eh, he's just a guy. Yeah. Uh, and then they kind of reinvent him as a much better person. I felt uh, anyway, um, following the first few episodes of season one, maybe all of season one, I'm, I, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, and so like having him come back in and marry Alma and all the rest of it, where now he's like this very sympathetic character and he's on the side of justice against Hearst, who we've been, you know, it's, uh, very explicitly evil um, has made him into a much more heroic character uh, who is much more bold in the face of, um, uh, of Hearst. Uh, and I think that that's maybe part of why it's kind of hard to see his arc as clearly as we could see. Cause like most other characters, and, and this is very common in shows, right? Like characters change and stuff, but Ellsworth in particular really did not start out that way. And they have written him into a much more, a uh, much bolder character. Now, for all I know, I don't know. Maybe David Milch had a you know ten thousand pages on Ellsworth and how, you know, his his intricate backstory and why he would, on one hand, you know, do whatever Al said and and just you know sort of uh, uh, keep this this murder a secret and and just look after himself, um, and that that fits with the rest of his character because it, to me it doesn't really, um, but I think that might be part of why his arc is kind of a kind of a strange one on the show um and why bringing that element back in it would have made it more cohesive but it also would have drawn attention to the fact that this is like it doesn't really fit i don't know but maybe that's just me um i do i mean what i i do like what ben is saying this notion that the show is very like i guess you know the generous way to put it i guess it's very fluid in how things develop it's not um it's not the sort of show where and it's funny to say just because so much of this is based on real history, but it doesn't feel like the sort of show where it's like we planned everything out from day one. We know exactly how everything's going to end and everything's going to develop and and we, we know exactly where all this is going. It's never really felt like that show. It feels a lot looser. It feels a lot like um, more spontaneous in a lot of ways. Which is cool. Like it makes it, it makes a moment like what happens to Ellsworth feel genuinely surprising. Because even though it is foreshadowed, there is a sense with like you never, at least I never like. I did not see it coming. <laughs> I'll say that I did not see it coming, and I didn't see it coming because it didn't feel inevitable to me. It you know, in retrospect, it obviously was foreshadowed, but it never felt to me like this is the only way it could have gone. And and as we've talked about, like this is not a show. It's a show that's willing to kill people, for sure, but it's not a show that is willing that is willing to do that um, for no reason other than to say, isn't life harsh in the Old West? Yes. <laughs> it's not the George R. R. Martin approach, with all due respect to George R. R. Martin, but uh, I don't find that compelling uh, at all. I've never found it compelling. It was one of my major complaints with Game of Thrones, even when it was good, which is like, just killing characters to show how much you don't care about them makes me not care about them. How am I supposed to care about them if I think they could die any moment? But we were able to invest in Ellsworth. We would in, we're invested in these other characters. Um, and so we're, you know, I know people have, uh, 
mixed feelings about, for example, Joss Whedon. But when Joss Whedon kills a character, he's killing characters we've invested in. They're not just randomly to say how crazy the world is. They're like characters that we have been allowed to be engaged with to some degree. Um, and it doesn't happen every episode or like every season or something, right? It's like a particular thing that happens. And I think that that's a meaningful decision. Um, and this is even less frequent. I think that, you know, of the main cast, very few characters have died. Um, but when it does happen, it has a lot of meaning because we've been allowed to invest in them without feeling like, well, they're just going to die anyway. So why would I, why would I care about this? And I think that's good. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're right about the sort of capriciousness of the show. And I, <laughs> I mean, what immediately comes to mind also are like the Earps, right? They just sort of came in and left. <laughs> just sort of filtered through like like a sea sponge, you know, processing brine or something, you know? It's just, they just kind of came into town and then just sort of drifted out. And that was, that was it. Didn't really do much. And it's funny because um, the show obviously begins with, not begins literally, but pretty much begins with Wild Bill's murder, which is itself very shocking and very you know, provocative moment, again, based on real history. But it does... Absolutely, right. It almost it, makes it seem like it might be that kind of show. But that's exactly what yeah. I was going to say. It sets up the idea that maybe this is a, a show like that, where stuff like this will just happen all the time. But the fact that it doesn't happen all the time, I think is what, like you say, that's that's what makes it the difference. It's like very few main characters or even secondary characters are ever just... I'll put it this way. This show doesn't kill people off in the way that we talk about TV shows killing off characters, like mm. using that specific phrase. Characters die on this show, but it never feels like they are just kind of tossed to the whims of like uh, of 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 shocking the audience. Like they're just, you know, thrown on the pile for the sake of making a surprising narrative like, oh, my God, I can't believe they killed off a character. Um, you know, characters die for specific narrative reasons and sometimes you know those reasons are just to say you know like in the case of william i think william died because to like you say make a point about how in the wild west things like this can just happen but it's because that doesn't happen every episode that that death is so impactful yes exactly exactly and um you know, the other approach, just to put a little bit of contrast on this, is you take half of your cast and you blow them up as a part of a season finale. Uh, and that's one way of, of dealing with characters. Um, but thankfully, this is Deadwood. So, um, anyway. Um, <laughs> real, real quickly, real, real quickly, I want to say that uh, there was a Nerdist interview with uh, Timothy Oliphant, uh, uh, where he talked about the reasons for William Bullock, uh, the Bullock son's death, and it was because of Milch's conflict, uh, personal conflict he had with the manager or the parent of that actor. Um, oh. <laughs> and so, and then Alphant used of it course. as the way, in, the way in which the show was improvised in a way in that he wrote this, what he considered to be very beautiful language, which I, I think find that whole thing moving. A lot of people complain that Bullock is not a central, I mean, William Bullock is not a central character, and it's strange to have so much focus on him as an episode nine quote unquote, but it's, uh, I think it's very affecting and it doesn't matter that it's improvised or it has its roots in something petty between Milch and someone behind the scenes. It's, uh, it's great. I, I, I agree totally that despite this, these plot developments being off the cuff, they're very affecting. They work really well. It's, uh, this is why, this is why we had you on. Cause I never mm -hmm. would have known that, but that is, uh, fantastic to know. Um, 
And as you heard on, uh, as uh, folks listening and, and Ben, you, you heard on that episode, uh, Esther didn't have uh, the fondest feelings about, about William anyway. So there you go. Um, right. So it wasn't a huge loss, I suppose, for the show. But I think you're right. So like this is, you know, certainly David Mills didn't think, oh, I'm going to be making a movie of Deadwood 13 years after the show finishes airing. Right. Like that was not the plan. And especially wasn't the plan that all of these actors who were playing these central characters are, you know, would 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 pass away, right? A little bunch of these uh, these characters in, in real life, these uh, these actors have passed away, which is is really sad. So, um, you know, you kind of got to just roll with it uh, in the context of um, of television and filmmaking and carrying on a story. So, yeah, it's a uh, it's a wild ride. So. Um, Yes, in my notes, I just have in capital letters Ellsworth. Uh, very, <laughs> very sad. Very. Um, I, I was still. I, I knew it was. I knew it happened, but I had just. I had forgotten it. I was just like that. Was very shocking. And it's funny, like just just one more point on the presentation Go of the it. scene. Yeah. Like, um, there's no, like you said, we're saying earlier, Soren. There's no like, the gore is so minimal that it's not initially clear that he's been killed mm. to me like you you don't see a a bullet wound in his in his forehead you know you just kind of see blood splatter so it's not until later again again like you say this great shot where the camera is attached to his body because of that you don't see the body you know you, you only see people's reactions and that's how you know what's happened but there's no like lingering shots of of a bullet wound or anything like that it's very it's, it's i guess it's it's tastefully done i guess i would it's tastefully done and i also like that this um so i had the uh I've had the pleasure of watching several episodes of Deadwood, random episodes, I, sh- I might add, with um, now two different people who have not seen the show. So I had to sort of catch up all of Deadwood for this person as they were watching what was happening. Um, and uh, But one of the questions that came up uh, as we were watching was, uh, who who is... Like who's in the cart, right? Because you see this person die who you haven't seen the whole episode, just suddenly just gets shot, right? It's pretty pretty early on, and if you have never seen the show before, it's like okay. And then you have this, but you immediately know what's going on if you know the show at all, just because of who's reacting and how they're reacting, right? The first person who who sees Ellsworth in this cart is Alma, and it's 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 not just the perspective shot, and I like I love how it's sort of wobbly and bouncing with the cart. Um, but it's also who's reacting and how they're reacting and, and how, what that sort of, um, immediately communicates to the, to the audience. Um, because you're right. I mean, like that shot, when Ellsworth is shot, it could have been like, you know, then cut to like Ellsworth scrabbling around on the ground, bleeding out, like trying to get to his gun. And then he gets shot again. And this like merciless Pinkerton standing over him or something, but like, it's not what happens at all. Um, it's, it's left again yeah it's left sort of um uh, minimalistically not i would say subtly but like minimalistically it's so that you can sort of just yeah. pick up this uh this sequence um so yeah so this episode is kind of a the culmination i would say of a lot of the tension that's been building um and obviously it's continuing to rise because there's now this um these like competing armies descending on the camp which I'm sure will be resolved all in one episode, as as mentioned. But uh, <laughs> in case it isn't, um, but this does this does, um, uh, if not pop the balloon, sort of like start to let the air out a little bit because um, 
you know, last episode we had someone shoot at Alma, and in this episode we have Ellsworth actually shot, and that immediately snaps everyone into action. Um, and I think that that sort of is emblematic of how this, this the rest of the show, the rest of the episode sort of takes off, um, where uh, uh, Al sort of convenes everybody in the camp who's of any importance, and uh, they start to 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 get ready for for a fight. Um, yeah, and then you know, in terms of you know what actually happens beside, I mean, so the, the it, it, this sets off sort of a um, a chain reaction, right? One of the first people to see Ellsworth. Uh, and I suppose this sort of came, I don't know if this came out of nowhere, but like, did Ellsworth have much of a relationship with Trixie at all? I don't remember. I mean, Ben, I, you would probably yeah, remember the, better than we would. Uh, mostly in the first season, Trixie and uh, Ellsworth talk in the gym. Uh, he okay. wants to pay her to give him an uh, explanation of how she was beaten in the first or second episode. Uh, and uh, she's the one who encourages him to marry uh, Alma. Uh, right, 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 right. So they, so they are, do have right, right. Yeah, that's true. And they're friends. Yeah, right. Because um, she just loses it uh, and decides uh, she makes a great decision. Actually, the decision we've often asked, and Esther is very specifically asked, which is why why have we uh, not seen anyone just try and kill uh, kill George Hurst? And uh, she she's like, yeah, that's a good point. And just walks off to go and shoot him uh, and unfortunately unlike her first shot in the first episode because i think it is trixie uh yeah doesn't uh doesn't doesn't hit him in the head which is a real shame or the heart for that matter just kind of hits him in the shoulder which is uh not idea and i get it it's a very like tense moment that you know she's yeah but it's still uh unfortunate um but yeah what did you what did you guys think of this scene I really like Trixie kind of getting the, I mean, it is, it, I didn't realize until it happened what she's doing, that she's getting, you know, naked to distract from her face so that he won't remember what she looks like. Um, right. I think that's really clever. Um, and as an example, it's kind of a more literal example of uh, Trixie as this character using her body and using her sexuality to get what she wants. Right. Um, in a very different way. I think it's a cool kind of twist on that. Um, and it, and it makes it for a very, you know, dramatic image, obviously. Right. Yeah. It's actually, <laughs> the, the, um, again, uh, watching this with someone who doesn't watch the show, uh, as Trixie's getting ready to storm off, um, uh, it was pointed out that she, she wears her, um, her shirt rather loosely, right? <laughs> she doesn't seem to button up very, <laughs> and then she just rips it open. <laughs> and I was like. Yeah, and she doesn't usually do that either. So uh, there you go. But also, you know, I think there's a very clear um, uh, delineation of like, like just moments prior, you see Alma, who's all buttoned up because she's a and like done up because she's you know a, from a very different class and social background uh, from Trixie. But like really down to the costuming, which is something I don't we don't really talk about almost ever on this show. Um, there's very it's very intentional uh, how they how they dress everyone and how they how they um, communicate a lot about who they are immediately through what they're wearing, right? How Merrick dresses versus how like the random Deadwood citizens dress versus um, like Joni and, and um, 
and Jane and, and a lot of the other characters. So it's something that I think they showed, aside from the thing we talk about a lot is how they're all written very differently in terms of how they talk. But the other thing is like visually how they how they look. And this is obviously exaggerated in the scene where Trixie just uses every trick she knows to catch her soft guard and, and, and to, to go for the kill, which unfortunately doesn't quite work. Um, and leads him to uh, to to the doctors afterwards, which is a, is a scene. <laughs> I also think it's interesting that all these Hearst men, they kind of let her, this is again kind of speaking to the way people perceive Trixie and the right. way people perceive the women in camp, that as she's walking away, no one like grabs her. No one stops No her. one tries to ab- She's holding a gun in her yep. hand. Yep. And of course, Merrick is trying to like cover for her. Like, oh, did, was someone else there? Did someone interrupt you? And that's what happened? And um obviously unnecessary because none of them pay her any mind it's it's, right, it's exactly. a it's an again it's just an interesting way is it, to is it Merrick? No, it's, it's farnham i'm sorry i meant farnham yes yep. yeah it's the rare yeah, well, uh, yeah. Yeah, rare farnham hero moment and uh, it's great uh to me it's theatrical in a way that begs belief i mean as esther you said it, it all those men should be able to see the gun in her hand and they don't and it's because of uh, their sexism, uh, but it, it, it works in a really cool way. Uh, but again, it, it's a, just this side of being realistic. I feel that even if a topless woman walked through a room full of uh, mercenaries with guns, one of them might notice the gun, but it, it really works for me in the show. And I just, I think it's super theatrical and over the top sort of, but I really like it. It works for Trixie. It works for Farnham. It, it's a great scene. Yeah, I think um, the other thing about it, too, is maybe the assumption of innocence so that even if she was the shooter, that they maybe they're like, well, she, maybe she had a good reason to do it. Right. Like no one holds her accountable when she shoot like she shoots the patron in the in season one, because it, there's like a. There's not a lot of protections for sex workers uh, now or especially at this time, um, I, I should point out. But uh, and, and I think. But I think that there's like an assumption of a certain level of decorum, a certain level of decorum, right? Uh, unless you're super wealthy uh, and you're well cut and you can do whatever you want. But there's a sort of an assumption that like, if uh, one of these women retaliates in some way to how they're being treated, then the other person has probably stepped over the line. That doesn't mean they're not going to be like punished or something by the um, by the person who owns the brothel and or whatever uh, the pimp, but there is a little bit of that assumption. So maybe there's like a, uh, a presumption here that whoever she was seeing, if she shot at them, maybe there's like, a, at least for now, a, a, an assumption of, of, of innocence. So like, I think that maybe goes along with it a little bit. So it's maybe not necessarily that they're not seeing the gun, um, which is, I think it's definitely part of it. I think it's like the assumption that she's, she's, she can't possibly be a threat. Um, but in addition to that, that uh, maybe there's an assumption that, well, if there was, maybe she had reason or cause um, one of the few like liberties given, I suppose, to, to these women. One, one of the things um, Far- Farnham says is that uh, Hearst must be so powerful to beckon her at his will. Um, mm. And uh, I don't know. It, even, yeah, yeah. There's lots of different interpretations of it. And it, again, it, it begs belief just a little bit. I feel like it's very true to Deadwood that it's, I don't know if it would happen in real life, but I, I, I like it a lot. Yeah, well, it yeah, goes yeah. To like It is very, like you say, Ben, it's very theatrical. Um, but I think it kind of, it works because it is this explosion 
of the tension that's been roiling all season. Right. Um, it they they get away with being a little uh beyond belief in this way just because like it, it is almost a cathartic. It, I mean, it's it's not almost. It is a cathartic moment, and obviously it, it introduces a whole new load of tension because she doesn't actually kill him, and he you know he lives. Uh, but it's just I think they get away with being a little uh just like 1% absurd in how this plays out because of how heightened the tension has been up to this point. Right. You know, it's, it's, they, uh, I think they, they pull it off. Yeah. And I, I think the, I think you're right. Um, and it's also the craziness of the scene is no one's really sure what's going on after Ellsworth is dragged into town and everyone starts freaking out and, and clustering together and sort of bunkering down. I think no one's really sure what the next move is, including maybe even the Pinkertons, because they're like, well, we didn't necessarily anticipate the entire town freaking out here. We really, really didn't anticipate some random, I guess, former prostitute. Although I guess they don't know that. Um, wandering in to see our boss. And then, like, no part of this makes, like, it's, it, it, it's um, uh, forecasted here. So it's kind of like... Uh, it's a moment of indecision and in that moment of indecision she sort of just sort of just blitz you know this blitz uh strategy just charge straight in uh and and especially if you're you're topless and just confuse the hell out of everybody so that nobody knows quite what happened until you're gone uh and you know nobody can really identify her after that uh but what i (laughs) I will say you said you know it causes some some down the line uh, tension uh the culmination of that uh, she she's freaked out at first, and they're all trying to figure out how to cope with what's just happened. But ultimately, there's one brief shot later in the episode of Saul and Trixie in bed having just had sex, uh, which is the full <laughs> tension breaking like moment for that plotline because that's sort of just how that ends for the episode. Um, and I just kind of like that. That's it goes from this scene to like fearing for your life to like chilling in bed together. <laughs> I just love that. It's like a, a little mini arc in a, in a broader episode. Yeah, no, yeah. Um, so the rest of the episode, that's kind of the, f- the episode's kind of split into halves, I guess. Uh, the second half of the episode is just everything following from what Trixie does. Um, one of the more interesting things, I mean, we, we skipped over it, I think for a good reason, but the episode begins with Bullock basically, uh, trying to lay down terms about because he has to campaign in other in other towns uh trying to lay down terms of like all right here's the kind of things you need to contact me about and what they decide on is well if there is hearst related shooting basically we'll we'll call for you that's exactly what happens and he's in the middle of a speech in uh sturgis and he gets a telegram and there's this uh great moment uh, commissioner jerry is there Mm mm-hmm and Jerry kind of asks him what's happened, and Bullock says, oh, like, didn't they tell you, or are you just counting the votes? Right, exactly. Um, and there's this great moment earlier in the episode where the soldiers have arrived in town, and they're just kind of needling Seth. And Seth asks them, uh, have they told you who you're voting for? And they say, oh, no, not yet. Just just completely openly and brazenly, uh, not not even trying to hide what they're there to do. Right, fixing the election. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's uh absolutely. I think uh it's first of all, this is like one of the first sequences we've had outside of Deadwood in a long time. Um the last one was probably um Fields uh 
yeah, I think that was when when they when they're going to chase down the horse, um, and they're we're just sort of in an unnamed beyond Deadwood like field or town or something like that. Um, and then prior to that, I guess when Seth is when Seth uh, when Bullock returns to the camp or whatever it is, <laughs> um, but mostly we have had almost no scenes outside of uh, Deadwood, um, and so I, it's it's kind of funny to see this completely not Deadwood location that. And it's like a full-on building, like it's a full-on like little set uh, for this uh, sequence. Um, but yeah, and it's <laughs> it's what I like about this is that this is like a very tense episode, and it still manages to like cut away to this much more bureaucratic, much more boring sort of scene of Seth trying to. Um, futilely like give his speech knowing that this election is fixed um but then immediately breaks that up and like brings him back into town so he can be back in the action again and i just i don't know i kind of i appreciated it like as a viewer i was like cool all right so we're not going to like try and juxtapose these two things we're just going to re-merge them again um but yeah the the other the other elements i think uh, of this uh this shooting uh when when hearst is shot um, is as I mentioned when he goes to see the doctor and uh, and Doc Cochran is uh, sewing him up again another scene that could have been very gory um, but isn't really at all um, and uh, Hurst is giving him this spiel about like how he never like I don't really know him I don't really know this Ellsworth person people seem to think I had something to do with his death. And I mean, I've encountered him before. He seemed to have a problem with me, but I've never meant him any harm and all this. And it's just so infuriating. I know we've heard like this kind of thing from him before, but it's just so it, when I was saying earlier, when we didn't really have time to process Ellsworth's death, it seems like this and scenes of like Alma morning and all that, that I think bring home the death a lot more like this induces the anger you know the sadness sort of comes from his family but but this this really brings up the anger i think um and it was just yeah it was it was irritating <laughs> to listen to yeah it, it's funny because it's irritating this is um it's just like hurst's hurst is not uh the moment of trixie shooting him like is in the moment really cathartic but then the fact that Hurst is like not at all cowed by it, he is not shamed by it, yep. he is not like put down in any way. It really like it just it gives you this moment of catharsis and then just rips it away from you. Just like it did, you know, this shocking thing that she did really didn't mean anything. And if it meant anything, it's just bad news for her and everyone else. Really, it's it means nothing to Hurst, and it is kind of it becomes representative of like. You know, just just Hurst, the kind of imbalance of this war to begin with. Right. That Hurst can have one of them, can have Ellsworth killed and just they shoot him right in the head. And the response is like, you know, it it just it, she just wings him. It doesn't you know, it, it might as well have bounced off. Yeah, it definitely it like sort of um hints at his like infallibility this this uh god complex he seems to have in the town um while everyone else is literally fearing for their lives so it's uh it certainly sets him up as being quite imposing and i think you know maybe if the show had gone on we would have gotten some uh 
hint as to or like a storyline about about his down, his downfall as like a, a figure in the town. Um, obviously, you know he goes on to have a, his kids and like a dynasty and the rest of it. So like it all. I don't know if he had more than one kid, but he, at least he had right, right, William Randolph Hearst and all. Like Hearst doesn't just disappear from history, so that can't happen. But I think that we might have like they're sort of building him up so that they can sort of take him down. But then, as we know, again this doesn't quite happen now perhaps in the film that is the plot line we'll get i don't know but uh yeah you you build up a character like that usually so that you can then take them down and uh we we only have one episode to do that and right now he seems pretty much invulnerable so yeah i mean i guess they sort of demonstrated he's mortal um, I really love the the image where he's in the hallway and Jacqueline Grish is opening his door and his key gets stuck. And there's this looming shot of uh, Hearst like a vampire, just scaring Grish, who is usually uh, very well put together. And he kind of freaks out and struggles to get into his room and then shuts the door, is very afraid. And uh, yeah, it, Hearst is kind of like, yeah. Mass and hypnosis on the town, and the only person who's broken through through is uh, Trixie. Um, no one. It seems right, natural exactly. to She's want. The one who like takes any action. It seems natural to want to kill him. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And and uh, you know Jack's like long term plan of doing whatever it is he's doing to Hearst, um is just not sufficient <laughs> at this point in time. Um, I suppose uh, speaking of language, which gave uh, just a very very brief. Um, uh, reflection on this. I will say this. I appreciate, as always, the extreme drama of the theater troupe because they have their own internal squabbles that have nothing to do with the town. But that also has its consequence in that it has nothing to do with the town. So we're kind of left going, this is a plot line for season four <laughs> that will never come to pass. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, there's not really much to be said about this, but uh, there's a lot of again, hemming and hawing about the uh, the addition of this new woman to the troop, even though, uh, as sort of a replacement for, was it Mary who left? Um, and uh, what that means and the consequences of that, I can't imagine is going to be some sort of major revelation in the final episode of season three. But, you know, well, can I, let's see. I can I tell you guys the <laughs> prevailing theories about the theater troupe um, as, they, as they currently sure. stand? Uh, yeah, please. One is that Josie Ann, the woman who replaces Mary in this episode, is uh, these are just online people uh, talking about the theater troupe that she is either uh, Jacqueline Grish's uh, daughter or his beard. And um, that, 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 those are the interpretations. I also uh, today in looking up because uh, uh, I, I kind of kind of morbidly delighted to talk to you about the theater troupe because they're again. <laughs> <laughs> it's very funny to, ha- to talk about the theater troupe at all, but I mean, Brian Cox is, as you have said, is, is great, but uh, yeah, it's a very overly complicated plot. But anyway, uh, the, his wife, uh, Josie Ann is played by his wife, uh, his real life wife who he married in, like in, in 2002. Life. Yeah. Which, which gives oh, it wow. a sort of, I don't know. There's a lot of daughters and uh, family members who get incorporated in the show. Uh, and she's yet another one uh, in small parts. And, uh, that kind of reassures me. It makes me feel kind of like there was some sort of, again, I, I also am afraid of not saying what doesn't happen. And so I, I shouldn't say anything, but, um, 
the theory of truth is universally maligned uh, as a plot thread. I think that's not too much to say. Okay. All right. That's uh, that's good to know. I, I So, you know, I watched Deadwood from beginning to end, though not the film, um, without any input from, like, the online community. I wasn't, like, reading up on it at all. So I did not know what the general reception was for various characters or ideas or whatever. Um, it's only I've only sort of seen a bit because I'm subscribed to the subreddit now. Um, but I try and avoid a lot of it because I'm trying not to spoil it, even though I've seen at least the series. Um, I'm trying not to spoil it for myself so I can sort of watch it with fresh eyes. Um, but yeah, that's that's good to know because I think I've been ambivalent about it because I'm always sort of waiting for it to come to something. But we also know there's basically nothing left of the show. Um, but Esther has <laughs> just had a hard time with the theater troupe. It's not even that, like, I mean, I love Brian Cox. I should say, by the way, I started watching Succession uh, this week. Oh, right. Yeah, you've been tweeting about that. It's really good. Yeah, I, I heard it was good. <laughs> it's fun. It's like, I won't, we don't have to have a whole conversation about it, but just as as it relates to Brian Cox, it plays very much as like a parody of prestige cable dramas in how it kind of, it presents itself as very self-serious and very, like, dramatic but it just like twists things just a little bit to where it's just completely ridiculous and they're in and and absurd and and nonsensical mm. um and it's not openly like parodic but it is it's a very funny show like not in an not even in an ironic way although partially in an like i'll give you an example there's this scene where like you know some you know characters on uh, prestige dramas will have they'll uh I'll have a scene where they eat ortolan, which is the whole thing where it's the bird that's been cooked inside a thing and you have to put a napkin over your head to hide your shame. Um, very dramatic, like high, uh, fine dining experience. Like, I, like Hannibal very famously did this and it's always like, Oh, these characters are so morally compromised because they're eating this, you know, illegal dish. Mm. Um, and the way that this happens in succession is that these two characters eat it. And it's the two like dumbest characters on the show. And one of them is just like, grossed out and he can't finish and he wanted to go to california pizza kitchen <laughs> and it's just completely undermining this like very typical uh <laughs> prestige cable symbolism that we see all the time it's just it's it's very amusing then brian cox is one of the main characters he's like the patriarch of the family right just bullying his children and every episode it's it's great yeah well i mean so i, I mean as we've we've said it, they really set up i think part of what's frustrating about this is like if this were like a Okay, two things about it. One is they really are partially, I assume for historical reasons, really trying to integrate this troop into the town as like a, a plot uh, and and characters and, and basically doing catch up on things that probably should have happened in like season one. Um, and it's not like these characters, un unlike say the Earps, they don't like come in and then leave. Like they're clearly meant to be permanent. Um, but the way they introduce Langriche in the beginning is so intriguing, right? He's this clearly very smart, potentially new power player in town. And maybe that's what they would have developed, in, developed into. I don't know. But they sort of axe a lot of that uh, pretty early on to focus on, like, his internal drama in with the troupe. Which, honestly, even, like, uh, I don't want to say Brian Cox isn't interested, but, like, Langriche isn't interested in. Like, he's not interested in the drama of his own troop, really. Like, he's invested yeah. in what's going on with the rest of the camp. And, like, when your main guy isn't interested in the drama, 
why would we be interested? Well, one of, you know what I mean? Like he wants to, to deal with Hearst. One of the great things about this episode is you see how he would integrate into the larger whole of, of Deadwood. You have the, you know, the scene where he makes sure Charlie feels comfortable uh, with the group and right. the scene where uh, he tries to comfort uh, Sophia a little less successfully. And, and he also goes to a meeting at a, a Bullock's house or Bullock's hardware store. And mm-hmm. he kind of basically announces Al and talks, you know, he says, Bullock, you are the camp's irreplaceable man. And anyway, you just see how he would work well within that group and how Brian Cox would be a great exactly. in the show. Um, Exactly, exactly, which may, which is what makes it frustrating not to see him more integrated into, like, what's going on. Um, and again, what he's doing in the context of the rest... If you had showed up without the troop, actually, and, like, they just sort of had him integrate with the town, and then as he, like, goes along, starts to, like, build a troop within the town, that might have worked. But because he brought these other characters, new characters with him, and, like, we have no idea how to interpret them, Hey, we're kind of left, aside from that, they're very theatrical and over the top, but I mean, that like, kind of goes without saying. We're kind of left going, what is this, where is this going? Um, and I can see... Well, I think what know, it is that we've we've talked about in previous episodes is that this season, more than the previous ones, is so kind of singularly focused. Right. Like, every character, it's not the kind of thing we saw in season one, most of all, especially, where it's like every character is in their own thing, and right. they kind of don't really sync up, It's more, but it's an ensemble show, you know? So there's a lot of different things going on. In season three, everything is about Hearst 100% of the time, except for this theater troupe stuff, <laughs> right? Like, it, it's, it's, it, if, if, if Deadwood in season three was the same show it was in season one, I don't think we would be as kind of uh, confused by this. Well, this is what I'm saying. It, like, it's, it's like season one catch up. It's like, oh, crap, yeah. we meant to introduce these characters in season one. Yikes. <laughs> The problem is, like, it doesn't fit, you know? It's not the right time. Um, so, yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. Where, like, there was, it was a lot more atomized. And that's actually what I was saying at the beginning, which is not about this, but just in general, that they were much more, like, factioned off, right? It was Saul and Seth, and it was Al and his group, and it was uh, the Bella Union. Um, and now, like, all of them have mostly come together. Um, what'd you guys make of, uh, of Psy this episode? He has that, I mean, it's really just the one, I guess it's two scenes because, uh, one of them happens a little bit later, but he has this almost breakdown. Yeah, I, I don't know how to read this. I mean, maybe, I, I, I would like to get uh, your two, uh, kind of takes on this, but it's, it, I found it a little, uh, I have an idea of what, what is happening here, obviously, like, it's not really confusing in any way. <laughs> But I am, as far as like its place and size narrative, it seems a little, I'm not sure why this is what they're, this is where they're taking this now. It it didn't feel to me like, this definitely feels like a thing. So let's be clear, like he has this moment of breakdown, like, uh, we're pretending to be so, so high class and so fancy. And it's like, it's not, and, and no one is kind of fooled by this, this facade we're putting on. And he is, and this is obviously, it relates to his business, but it's also, I think, his a very personal frustration of, like, he kind of likes to play this very powerful, very in-the-know, very, uh, you know, this, this guy, this catbird seat guy, basically, right? Like, that's where he, he likes people to think that he is. And he has this breakdown of, like, 
No one's buying it. It doesn't matter. No one perceives me this way. Um, and I just wish, I think they could have built up to this a little more just because I don't think that's, I don't know. I, 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 I like it in isolation as a development for Psy, I guess is what I'll say. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know, Ben, please do uh, jump in, but just to, from my perspective, it just seemed like a, um, he feels impotent. He feels like he hasn't, um, he doesn't have, yeah, I don't know. I guess his, like, his subservience to Hearst has left himself, like, has left him um, without any sort of play, and the result is that the town is sort of falling apart, and there's, like, drama going on that he's not a part of. Um, I don't know if he feels bad about Ellsworth dying, but I think just generally that seems to be where he's at. I, I mean, I could be wrong about that. But I, yeah, I didn't know how to read this scene at all, which is partially why I brought it up. But yeah, go ahead. I think what, what they're going for with Psy or how I interpret it is there's always a bigger capitalist and that he's, as you said, he, he's bought into Hearst and he's going <laughs> to, you know, make money through Hearst. And now he realizes that he's, you know, as he's already said, he's a plaything or he's, he's a, a dog to Hearst that will, he can wag his tail for Hearst or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, I, he feels, as you said, impotent. He can't. He's not in control. I mean, we keep getting these, we get Al, who's a pretty much evil, murderous person obsessed with money. And then we get Cy, who's an evil, worse, uh, murderous person obsessed with money. And now we get Hearst, who is the most evil, murderous person obsessed with money. And (laughs) Cy is just feeling the natural end. And I I think, you know, Deadwood is a great anti-capitalist show. And I think it's, I think it's what, you know, it's a feeling of, of working for something very hardcore, giving up some very, human aspects for it and then uh finding that you are just you know it's nothing's within your control right and the, and that the whole thing sort of just chews you up and spits you out right and i guess that is you know the that's another way to to that's a great um way of maybe reframing ellsworth's death right is that maybe it's the whole point is that it doesn't have this it doesn't really mean it 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 means something to the people who are affected by it, of course, right? Like they, they don't strip him of his humanity, but the randomness of it, right? Like, yes, it's connected to um, uh, Alma's claim and all the rest of it, but like, it's that's what matters, right? The, it, it, you can sort of draw some uh, reason out of the madness if you follow the money, but in terms of why does this happen narratively, dramatically, etc. It is just sort of like because he is someone who has thoughts <laughs> that go beyond who you know how much money he can make and how much money Hearst can make, and the result is you know him being murdered. And so I think maybe the the randomness, the suddenness is it's part of the point. There is the anonymization and atomization of these these people as as sort of just uh, impediments in in the way of of the money-making machine right which is in the case in this case uh embodied by hearst but could be anybody really so i think that's that's definitely part of it yeah i like this idea that sai is this guy who has always basically hearst has put him in this position where sai is forced to confront the fact that like as as powerful as he can feel he will never be the top dog really like there will always be someone above him someone more powerful than him, someone who can control him, like without even having to work for it. Um, 
and that he is kind of having in this existential crisis of like this kind of system that I've worked in all my life that I have kind of moved to the, not to the top of, but moved to what previously was a very comfortable position. Um, there's all like the ladder never ends. There's always going to be someone one or two or three rungs above you. It, it never, it doesn't, there's no top. There's no getting off at a plateau and you're finally, you've made it. You know what I mean? And he's, this is Psy kind of, whereas I think Al has always been able to acknowledge that that's the case, but that he is comfortable where he, like he is able to carve out a place where he is uh, in control of enough that he can feel comfortable. Right. And this is why Hearst disturbs him so much. Like something he said, he's said a couple times earlier in the season is like, why would Hearst even care about Deadwood? It doesn't make any sense to him that Hearst would put all this effort into taking control away from him because he thinks he's in this position where, like, you know, he's not the most powerful person in the world, but he doesn't have to be because he's in a position where, you know, he can wield power over this small area and it's small enough, it's big enough that it matters, but it's small enough that nobody more powerful than him will, will want to exactly. mess with Exactly, it flies under the radar, which is the whole point of being, like, outside of the government, outside of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that that's that's a contrast between the two of them. That's worth uh, that I think is drawn drawn pretty starkly in um, this episode. I also want to say a stark contrast. <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> I, I walked into that one. <laughs> you really, you basically said it. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Um, you, you guys both know that uh, Powers Booth has passed away. I, I think you've said this before, right? Yes. Um, there there's a quote from David Milch about Cy Tolliver's arc, and I don't think it's a spoiler if you know that he that that arc will not ever be completed because he has died. Um, yeah. But it's it's probably was probably bullshit that David Milch was making up. But he said something like, "Over the course of over the <laughs> course of five seasons, Cy Tolliver will become the biggest feminist in all of Deadwood, or something." And uh, <laughs> which to, sounds insane. Um, and but I would su- I assume this is the first wrinkle in his arc, so that he is uh, learning the idea of empathy. Maybe here I, I don't know. I, there's there. Well, this is what I wasn't sure. Like, is he sad about? I mean, but he he then he lords it over yeah the women who are in his employ, right? So it's kind of like hard to buy. Yeah. Well, the show steadfastly re- refuses to humanize him ever. Uh, I mean, okay. at least up until this episode. Uh, but it's like. There's no, even when he's stabbed, he's not like humanized in any yeah, way. He's a very he alternates between being morbidly funny and morbidly threatening, and he gets more weird as the series goes on. And um, yeah, I, it it's another thing where you wonder what would have been uh, if 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 Powers Booth had not passed away. Yeah, I would I would absolutely love to see that turn for Psy because it does feel like he is on the cusp of a kind of a reinvention of his character in this episode. This definitely feels like a moment where he breaks and he realizes that, like, OK, the way that I'm operating right now is not working. It's not efficient. Yeah, something has to change. It's not, I would, it's not there's no winning in this battle. I'm not I'm not equipped for this kind of fight. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it is regrettable that we'll never see how that would have played out. But it is I would have absolutely loved to see where they were going to take him next. Yeah, that would have been a, would have been a hell of a turn if that's how they, they went with him. But um, as you noted, David Milch has a propensity to just sort of say things. So um, yeah. who's to say, really? Um, 
there's not much else to say. I, I just want to say that I, I really like the, the very brief scene with Richardson and Jewel, where Jewel says that he's, he's too ugly to be sneaking up on people. Um, we, uh, we, we touched about it before we started actually talking about the episode, but love the scene with Farnham, uh, where he's still standing there with, uh, with, uh, her spit in his face and actually decides to like do something about it, which I mean, it's, it's not nothing, uh, to see him like, you know, he's not really the butt of the joke in this episode, which is unique for Farnham. Um, and, and uh, the last thing was just, I love the scene of uh, Jane playing uh, Duck Duck Goose. I just think it's really cute. So, yes. <laughs> I'd say with, Far- with Farnham good. and uh, with Jane, uh, Jane realizes that maybe she shouldn't be involved in, uh, uh, maybe she doesn't want to go be involved in the conflict, uh, the shootout, or the, you know, the violence down the street. And maybe she is maybe better at comforting the children who might be frightened. And then, Farnham, I mean, I'd argue that Farnham helps Trixie walk out of his hotel alive um, by the way he, he colors what she's doing as like kind of a running commentary. And um, Farnham is one of my favorite characters. And I, I love, I just, anything where he gets to have more, unlike Tolliver, he is, uh, he gets small moments where he has, at least he expresses sorrow. Um, I don't know. Yeah, no, I I think that's definitely true. I mean, I know Esther Farnham might be your favorite character. I think he might be. Um, I drew, I do really like, like I'm always drawn to characters like like Farnham. Like there's there's one or two on Succession who are very uh, similar, actually. Mm. Um, both of them in that scene I mentioned, actually, which is part of what makes it so great. Um, I do love the idea of Farnham as this guy who is, like. You know, like both him, like you say, Ben, both him and Psy are like detestable in a number of ways. They're really kind of just irredeemable. Um, but Farnham is so like he's not charismatic. He's not charming. He's not likable. But for me, he is like I, I, I love him. I love how I love how uh, despicable and, and shady and gross and mean he is uh, and how he just just a character that the whole reason he's there is just to be shitty and then get owned over and over and over again. Like, I just love that dynamic. Um, and it's, it is distinct from Psy, who is a character who is like actually, you know, evil and, and cruel. Uh, you get, you get Farnham who is more there. You get the catharsis of Farnham getting, uh, his teeth kicked in almost every episode. And it's just, I, I love to see it every time. Yeah, and you know Farnham is is evil and like he's like venal, right? Like he just he's willing to take any bribe or like sort of work for any sort of interest, but isn't really. It does sort of fancy himself uh, a a loyal person or a good person, even though he obviously doesn't seem to have much of a moral compass. Um, so finally, like setting him on the right path a little bit is kind of a nice way to conclude that, and I'll be very curious. Assuming he makes it through the final episode, uh, to see in the film um, how they play his character, having had thirteen years of uh, maturity, um, maybe he will not mature at all. I don't know, but who's to say? Um, speaking of uh, next week, we have the finale of season three. Is there anything like any final thoughts you wanted uh, on this episode, or just the show, Ben, in general? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, anything we'll you want to leave us with? We'll certainly conclude. Yes. Um. Yes, yeah. Yes. The one major I, I may have made this online before, but one historical point that I always find interesting with the show that 
I don't think is remarked upon much is that Bullock, uh, the historical Bullock, it was much less progressive. I imagine that's obvious than this Bullock. Um, but for example, the historical Bullock has been accused of using soldiers to influence elections, um, uh, as he is the victim of in this episode. Um, and se- <laughs> wow. secondly, you know, this, this Bullock cries and writes a passionate letter over a minor who has died, but one of the most interesting and cinematic stories in Deadwood that is not in the series, uh, among many, uh, but there, there's this thing where uh, two minds were digging into each other's claims, and so then they started to argue underneath, underneath the ground over who had what claim and where they ended and started. So then there was a shootout underneath the ground in the mine between these two mines that had run into each other, and someone died. And then uh, because of that death, the miners for the Keats mine were not paid. And so the actual Bullock, the historical Bullock, they sat in there for 17 days, and the historical Bullock came in and called in the army. Also, he was an appointee of Yankton. He was allied with Yankton. So he was, he, I mean, he was more a businessman than a sheriff. And, um, but he, he poured sulfur to avoid bloodshed. Uh, He poured sulfur into this mine and sealed up ventilation shafts and forced the workers out in that way and was praised for um, avoiding bloodshed through the use of sulfur poisoning. But, um, but, Wow. But, you know, um, Bullock, w- this book uh, recently that I read, uh, Seth Bullock, Black Hills Lawman, uh, one of the reasons which he was uh, possibly lost this election, the 1877 election in real life, was because of uh, his unpopularity with the working man. And the person who won uh, uh, was John Manning. Uh, Harry Manning, the show, is an amalgamation of uh, John Young, the guy who shot uh, Bummer Dan and uh, uh, John Manning and Harry Young, and he's a combination of those two. And he won over uh, the actual Bullock, uh, not because of you know soldier malfeasance, but because of um, just because he was more well liked. Um, no, no, that you're definitely right because they they definitely make Seth out to be much more of a like a righteous character who's sort of on the side of of. Definitely the the anti Hearst side, not just in terms of like Hearst is a villain and like a interloper in the town, but also like he's morally aligned with the other folks. Yeah, um, which obviously in real life isn't so much the case. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it makes it a better. I, I really appreciate the show as ahead of its time in terms of how it deals with the effects. I, I say that the town of Deadwood is under this mass hypnosis around Hearst, not only because he's a historical figure and he can't be killed for that reason, but also because it's just the effect the tension that you feel living under uh, kind of this control of a large company that, you know, controls what you do. Um, and, mm. yeah, you know, uh, or yeah. And they're all sort of paralyzed in that, that hierarchy. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. And one more little historical point, Mose Manuel who, who died, I mean, who didn't, who is in the series and is shot and comes back as the uh, uh, security guard for Joni Stubbs uh, building. Uh, he gave up, and it's, it's not really shown in the series, but he gave up the Homestake Mine, uh, which was purchased by Hearst, as in the series, and then becomes this the largest gold claim in the United States and is worth you know, like something like $20 million or more, and it produced gold until 2001, uh, at which wow. point it became 
it's so far underneath the ground uh, that they do uh, string theory experiments there. Now they, they do, it's, it's a beneath uh, sort of radiation or something where they can do science experiments. And it's now purchased by some sort of uh, scientific research company. Well, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. wow. <laughs> oh, that tickles my fancy. That's very cool. <laughs> I dig it. Um, See, this I, I what, just, again, this is why we had you on. <laughs> definitely. I do just want to say before we go real quick, um, and because for a couple of reasons, both because we've talked about Tarantino on the show before and because Timothy Oliphant is in it. I did see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I liked it a lot. Timothy Oliphant is playing not a Seth Bullock type character, but he is playing an actor who plays a Seth Bullock type character on a Western TV show. Oh, how funny. Um, and I just thought that was really funny. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I didn't realize that. I mean, I wanted to see it anyway, but that's, that'll be It's a fun. good, again, I've been, you know, mixed on most Tarantino, but I, I really like it. One. All right, good. Very good. Um, so Ben, if you have anything you'd like to, uh, to plug before, Oh, I'll just say this quickly about the next week. So next week will be uh, tell him something pretty, which is uh, season three, episode 12. Um, and I'll close out uh, in just a moment. But Ben, would, if you have anything that you'd like to, to discuss or plug, then uh, feel free to, to mention. Um, yeah, I would like to plug, uh, you know, obviously the, the podcast that I'm working on with my friend Chad. And we've already filmed it all, but we may have, you know, lost some of it. But anyway, we're editing this podcast, uh, <laughs> which is uh, uh, about Deadwood. And it's called Anyways. It's on YouTube. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a maybe a a little sillier and uh, with some dumb jokes and it, it anyway, we, we talk about Deadwood and it's enjoyable. Uh, also I'm wor- working on a film called space submarine commander, a science fiction uh, pro-choice musical uh, being made in Memphis, Tennessee with a small budget. Uh, and uh, we'll wor- be working on that and releasing it next year. That's, That's awesome. Wow. So cool. <laughs> um, and also I, I've actually seen some of anyways, and it's a, it's, it's a, a very entertaining. You have one person who hasn't seen it. Right. And they're sort of experiencing it for the first time. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's got that, that, um, that fun vibe to it. And, uh, I definitely recommend That's it. That's how we like to do it here for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, uh, we'll of course link to, to these things, um, in, uh, in the write up. So if you're interested in checking any of that out, uh, you can do that. Um, in the meantime, uh, you can, of course, find uh, Movie Fail Podcast, Hoopleheads, and uh, our future shows, past shows, etc., all on uh, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, etc. Um, we have an RSS feed. You can just plug that into your RSS reader uh, and subscribe, or you can subscribe on moviefail.com. If you put your email in, you'll get uh, updates whenever we post a new article. Um, so that includes podcasts and, and whatever else uh, we like to post. So... Uh, thank you again for joining us, uh, Ben. And, uh, of course, Esther, as always, uh, it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. See you thank you a lot. Thank you. Thank you.